And how much sugar can we eat? How bad is sugar for you in different forms like high fructose corn syrup? You know, is it a quote poison as people say? So the interesting thing first that you'll note if you really start digging into this question is that you know, you know, the, the US RDA, there, there is no recommended amount of sugar because it's not a nutrient, it's not an essential nutrient, but uh, different organizations like the American Heart Association will say, you know, have have up to this amount of, of your, your calories per day in sugar, or even the, the Department of Agriculture has their own assigned value, which is about 10%. So if, if you wanted to look at what the establishment status quo is, they would say, you know, have about 10% of your calories from sugar and you'll be okay. What's interesting is that has no relevance or basis in research. They just kind of a, pulled a number out of the air to say, well, it sounds kind of minimum, kind of gives, gives you a little bit of leeway, but, but we'll just kind of throw that number out there. Research conclusively shows that that is completely invalid as, as even a statement. So one of the things I think that's important first, and we talked a lot about this a couple of days ago, is to look at the types of sugar we eat. And monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polysaccharides kind of make up the continuum of, of types of sugar we can eat. Uh, interestingly, polysaccharides, which most people think, you know, okay, those are the really high fibrous type carbs that, that we really don't get that much in our diet. That's, that's almost unconsumable type of carbohydrate. That's like, that's like eating your leather chair, but a, a monosaccharide is, is just a pure sugar, like, like glucose. Those are also somewhat rare because they tend to bond together to create disaccharides. And that's what we consume most of. So sugar is sucrose, and that is actually fructose and glucose bond together. Lactose is also glucose and, and galactose bonded together. Uh, fructose is a monosaccharide. So this is where it gets a little interesting. So glucose, which is blood sugar, that's as small as it gets. That's a monosaccharide. Fructose is also a monosaccharide. And this is why people have questions. Is fruit okay for me? Or, or what is, you know, what is high fructose corn syrup? It's, if it's fructose, maybe that's okay. So, so a lot of people have had these versions of thought between, you know, fruit is supposed to be good for us. It is high in fructose. And we know fructose is, is low on the glycemic index. So you're not going to get the insulin response. So that's supposed to be good for us. Yet it's still sugar. So maybe it's not so good for us. A lot of quote experts will say, you know, fruit is bad because fruit's full of sugar. So, so what do you do with all this information? Well, hopefully you do research and you find out, you don't just leave it up to people who are going to create their own little, little cults and conspiracy theories. So I looked at one study again. Well, first of all, I looked at a, a bunch of meta analyses, but, but it led me to one study of particular note, which was again in, in the Journal of Cell Metabolism, which is what we covered last week. And they did some amazing work in one massive study. So, so first of all, you have to understand why, uh, why people use mice and rats as research agents for human uh, you know, epidemiology studies. And that is because we are closely related. When, when the asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago, 
everything died except rodents went underground and those are our closest ancestors. So our DNA is about 94% identical to, to, to mice. And, and so they become very, very good, smaller replicas of us for epidemiology studies. So they, they took a thousand mice for, um, I think it was three months, which is equivalent to about a decade of life of, a, of, a, of an adult uh, human. So, so you're looking at a pretty concentrated amount of time, what can happen in a year of consuming a certain diet, or I'm sorry, 10 years of consuming a certain diet. That's pretty valid because we talked about last week, like, you know, hey, we, we looked at a study where we, we did diets for a week at a time, you know, week at a time, wash out, do another one. Now you're talking about studying what happens over an entire decade on a particular diet. So all kinds of different research has different, different values. And this is just another one. Uh, certainly you'd like to replicate this kind of study in humans and at different ages and different sexes and that kind of thing. But for this study, they, they took a thousand mice over a three month span and they tested them on 30 different diets. And they wanted to look at if you can, if you change protein from really high to really low or carbs from really high to really low or fat from really high to really low. And by, by high to low, uh, you know, some of the diets were 10% of their calories from fat all the way up to 80%. 10% carbs up to 80% carbs. Protein, of course, you're not going to give somebody 80% of their diet from protein, although I'm sure some people try that. Uh, so, so they really looked at like 5% to 30%. And, and this is what I really liked about this. They did more than 100,000 tests per day for three months. So that's how many blood draws and tests they're doing, uh, you know, spread out over the course of 1,000 mice. And, and so they really got some great data on, on what exactly is happening in the bodies of these mice. And, and this, this, it's going to surprise you. I mean, it, it really kind of surprised me because I thought, I thought I knew what they would show, but guess what the only diet was, and then I'll tell you why that actually increased obesity, not a high sugar diet. You could take sugar all the way up didn't, didn't cause obesity, but you take fat up and you start getting about 40 to 50% of your calories from fat, you start gaining obesity and 60, 70, 80% of your calories from fat, obesity. So just like we talked about last week, where even with the insulin model, so ensconced in our brains, where we think, oh, if, if your sugar, you know, blood sugar goes up, you release insulin and you store fat, it just doesn't happen. I mean, that's a myth I believe for years. It just doesn't happen. Uh, it, th there is an effect, but it's not that you just automatically convert that to unusable fat and, and become obese. And here's where some of the, the biochemistry comes in. When, when you're consuming higher amounts of fat, it does not trigger the hypothalamus to be satiated like we think. Like how many times have you heard a coach, even me, Say, well, if you're, if you're getting, you know, too hungry, we may have to just replace some of those carbs with fat and, and we'll put a little more fat in there. So it slows down digestion and that, that gives you a little bit more satiety between meals. Well, maybe in that controlled of an environment where you're really tracking macros and, and you're talking about small amounts, there probably is that behavioral element, but in mice, 
when when they can eat whatever they want. So again, it's untracked, and, and it wasn't even the fact that they were, um, you know, in, in kind of inpatient war. I mean, of course they were. They were only getting what they had to feed. But they, they part of the studies were to see what happened to their hunger, to let them eat what they want after this baseline diet, and the higher fat meals, that the higher fat diets made them keep eating. So completely contrary to most people's opinions, when you eat carbs, your insulin levels are going to go high and then you're going to get hypoglycemic and you just want more and more and more. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. It was only with fat. When you, when you let them eat what they want in carbohydrates, they got sated at a certain level and didn't overeat. So very, very interestingly, when you look at what the, our Western diets have done in the last 40 to 50 years, we now consume uh, about 500 calories per day more than we did in 1950. So uh, imagine that, first of all, um, I, I always get this little note that says my internet's unstable. Hopefully I didn't uh, lose anything there. But but imagine since 1950, the, the, the average daily intake of, of the Western human being is 500 calories higher. And of course, our, our rate of activity is much, much less. So when you look at the fact that less than 5% of us at, at the turn of the last century, the 1900s were, were overweight or obese, and now 70% of us are, I mean, think of that turnaround. I'm, this is just a guess. I'm pulling this completely out of my butt. But if, if, our, if, if we know the American diet is 500 calories higher, I'm guessing that our calorie expenditure has to be at least 500 calories lower. So you're looking at, a, you know, in, in my estimation, about a thousand calorie turnaround. And the interesting thing is sugar consumption has, has gone up. There's no doubt. Matter of fact, if you go all the way back, like I just went to, you know, 1900, if you go back to the 1700s at the time of the American Revolution, that, that kind of time frame, our sugar consumption has gone up about 40 fold, not, not 40%, 40 times. Because back then there was no such thing as processed food. You couldn't go to the grocery store and grab a, a candy bar or a loaf of bread. You you literally had to grind your own flour and, and make things like that. So one of the things that uh, I hope you're thinking or, or wondering is, okay, you know, fat is bad, sugar, not quite so much the enemy, but still we've increased our, our sugar consumption by 40 fold. So, so what gives, what impact does that have on our bodies? I want to go back to something that I talked about earlier in the week, which is the difference between fructose and sucrose and, you know, what's, what's in fruit we consume, uh, high fructose corn syrup. So, uh, if you remember just a few minutes ago, I said table sugar itself, sucrose is 50% glucose, 50% fructose, high fructose corn syrup is exactly the same. So Another thing that we hear in culture is that high fructose corn syrup is poisoning us. You know, don't consume that. And I've even been uh, somebody who will look at a product and say, oh, look, this vitamin water has pure cane sugar. So it must be better than this Gatorade that has high fructose corn syrup. Biochemically, there's just zero difference. It has zero difference whatsoever because they're both 50% fructose. 
the the big deal is just the sheer quantity because this is what happens in super high amounts and and so so you have to kind of bifurcate these two things in your mind in these mice studies they show that higher fat diets lead to more overeating lead to less satiety higher fat diets make you crave more fat and, and that's all regulated by the hypothalamus and leptin levels uh, it, you know, it's all, this is all metabolic science. It's not just, you know, your, your psychology. This is what's happening internally with these hormonal cues. But when you, when you look at sugar, you can still definitely get too much. And because table sugar and high fructose corn syrup both have 50% fructose, the thing that's important there is if you remember, I said that our bodies can't use fructose. It, it's not it's not a sugar, even though it's a monosaccharide, super small that we can use. So the liver readily does convert it to fat. The good news is that still has I, I wouldn't say good news. It, it's it's kind of mixed news that it seems to have. Uh, kind of a threshold where at least you end up because that's a low glycemic phenomena that you don't seem to overeat as much. You don't necessarily crave more of it. But what's truly interesting is that fructose does not stimulate the hypothalamus to decrease appetite. So when you give people really pure studies, like if you're just ingesting pure fructose or pure glucose or, or some other versions of food to, to test this, people who get dominant amounts of fructose, they do report more hunger sooner. So we talked about a couple of people, I think Roseanne, we talked about how, yeah, sometimes if I just eat a piece of fruit on an empty stomach, I actually sometimes feel hungrier. It, does, it doesn't satisfy me as much as other things. That would be very consistent with the fact that fructose does not stimulate the hypothalamus to downregulate appetite. But at the same time, and this is where I think some psychology comes in, if people are reaching for fruit more often, I think they're probably already a little health conscious. And these are things you can't parse out in mice studies or just looking at the biochemistry and epidemiological study. So, so I, I think it's the fact that those people who are eating fruit just think, okay, I, I had that, that's enough, or that's part of my day, and it's, it's part of their habitual nature. Uh, but at the same time, the people who don't have those health values, and they're getting fructose from high fructose corn syrup instead of fruit, or pure sugar in processed goods, they don't have those same health values, those same food principles, so they just consume more and more and more. And, and that's where you can look at some of the behavioral studies that people who consume more soda, for example, and, and we have increased by 500% our, our soda consumption or pop, depending on where you are in the country. Uh, I never know which one of those to say. Uh, but, um, you, you know, the, the, our consumption of that has gone up fivefold also since the 1950s. And of course, that's what's in every single product. You, you, you can't even use ketchup or mustard without there being sugar or high fructose corn syrup in it. It's in so many foods we consume. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it to some questions, uh, but, but I, I want to wrap things up by saying that what really startled me was in such a massive study, we're looking at over a thousand subjects, 
for an entire 10 year human span, getting 100,000 data points a day that they could conclude with unbelievable certainty that the only diets that led to obesity were higher fat diets. And you could take sugar, I'm talking pure sugar consumption up to 80% of your calories and, and those subjects did not become obese. They just, they, you know, it did not change their, their, their appetite for more. They just, I'm sure they probably got sick of eating that much sugar, uh, but it just, you know, it was, that was a really interesting phenomena to me. But then looking at the fact that, that, you know, for some reason, even though I, I knew this academically, table sugar being 50% fructose, high fructose corn syrup also being 50% fructose, they're just completely, you know, the, the same in the body biochemically by the time they hit your stomach and are digested. And so for me, the take home message is to say, you know, how, how much, first of all, you know, total calories there are, I mean, that, that is the bottom line, by the way, every single study, we went over this a couple of days ago. And, and then especially last Friday, every single study, it, it only matters total calories. But if you're not regulating your calories, if you're not tracking macros and being diligent like that, then it's the higher amount of fat that does create the, the, the higher appetite. So with all that said, do you guys have any questions or comments? As you guys are thinking about jumping in here, I'll also say that some of the- I got one there for you, Joe. Yeah, go right ahead, Dan. Now, if the sugar consumption increased uh, times 40, uh, what did the fat consumption increase in a similar time frame? Uh, because it sounds to me from what you're saying that uh, the conclusion is that uh, our obesity academic, uh, uh, problem is a function of our increased fat intake, not necessarily our increased sugar intake. So what would be the increase in fat intake in that same period or similar time frame? I'll have to look that up. That is one thing I didn't didn't look up. But but remember, one of the things that was replaced with that sugar consumption is is just normal grain type products. Uh, you know, we're we're now grabbing a, a bag of you know potato chips or you know candy bars or processed cereal or you know the additives like that instead of instead of having you know more whole food like like potatoes and rice and oats and so forth. Um, but but I'll definitely get that for you and, and I'll find out. Yeah, because it seems to me that based on what you're saying, uh, not that we have a, a pass on sugar, uh, it's just not the white evil that we thought it was. Uh, so if that's the case. It builds our credibility in far as NAMS is concerned in regards to keeping your fats at 25% of total caloric intake, uh, which I've been doing for the last year very successfully. And I'm not hungry at all. But I think you mentioned Roseanne talked about, I guess the other day, about eating an apple and getting hungry. Uh, I find that same thing is similar if, uh, you know, my wife from time to time has a piece of candy, a, you know, chocolate bar, which, you know, I'll take one bite and immediately, I don't know, psychologically or not. I mean, I'm, I, I get a hunger pang right away from that. And uh, so I just stay away from that stuff. 
Well, some, some of that kind of loops back into the dopamine system too, where, where sugar does increase that, that desire. And that's different than the hypothalamus and leptin that's controlling actual hunger. So mm-hmm. you, you, you know, people talk about the difference between physiological hunger and psychological cravings. Yeah. And you get those psychological cravings from the dopamine reward system, like, like more, 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 I want that, which is exactly why I was shocked that with these, these studies of a, of a thousand subjects that giving them up to 80% of their calories from sugar didn't, didn't make them want to go binge on more. But again, this was, these were calorically maintenance, you know, these weren't calorie deficits. So you weren't dealing right. with necessarily that, that gnawing kind of hunger and, and they would give them these meals and then watch their behavior. Um, and so there, there, you know, there, there were, there were several layers to the study and, and the observations they made, but, but I agree with you. Um, you know, I, I, I think if I were to say, okay, on an isocaloric diet, I'm eating 2,200 calories a day, I'm going to get 80% of my calories from sugar. I don't think that's necessarily going to not have a negative impact on my health. Sure. But, but at the same time, it's far less than we thought. And it's far less than if you did the converse, which is to have 80% of your calories from fat, you know, then all of a sudden you've got dropping levels of testosterone. You're, you're, you're seeing like in the study we reviewed last week, you're seeing your metabolism fall. I mean, remember these people had a, an almost 10% drop in metabolism in just one week by, by reducing their carbs. So, so I, I agree. This is not a license to say, Hey, everybody go out and drink, you know, Mountain Dew all day. Sugar's sugar's not the bad guy anymore. It's, it's really looking at those comparisons. Uh, I I will do that. Annalisa. I'll, uh, it's, it was in cell metabolism. I don't even know the date, but I've, I've got it written down. There was actually another really cool meta-analysis I was reading. They, they just listed this one particular study group that's done, you know, all kinds of studies and they just had this entire massive paragraph of all of their conclusions from the meta-analyses, uh, including the fact that it, you know, that it was interesting to them that, that fructose you know, did not uh, change the response inside the, the hypothalamus. And so you could eat you know, fructose and still be hungry, uh, which again was something biochemically I had just never, never really encountered. But, but I'll definitely give you those studies. You know, I got another follow-up there. You know that the um, uh, that eat McDonald's for a month type of thing that mm-hmm. the fella did. So, do you think that uh, the negative health impact was more from fat or perhaps uh, preservatives than the sugar that was in the food? Oh, it was it was a hundred percent from the fat and just the extra calories in that. If you remember that, Dan, he had this almost kind of game where he went in there, he ate McDonald's three times a day. And if he was asked, do you want to upsize that? He had to say, yes, he had to basically eat whatever they wanted him to purchase. And so you're talking about quarter pounders and Big Macs and large fries and full 32 ounces of you know sugary soda. And, uh, and it was just the pure calories because in 30 days, when you saw the amount of rapid fat gain, that's, that's what causes those liver and blood panels to just go off the chart in a negative way. Um, you know, I, I would argue that he didn't even eat that much sugar. I mean, it's just meat and potatoes and bread and, and, you know, sodium and so forth. But, uh, you, you were going to jump in as well, Annalisa. 
Oh, yes. the amount that we su suggest. Okay. Um, so, you know, interestingly, the American Heart Association says that the average adult male should only have about 150 calories from sugar and the average adult female about 100 calories from sugar. So you're looking at like 25 grams of carbs coming from sugar as a female and maybe, you know, 37 and a half grams of carbs from sugar if you're a male. And, and that that's that's around like eight or so percent. But then, as I said, the Department of Agriculture said, you know, they'll just round that up to 10, you know, 10 percent. So so then you might you might have a little bit more. Uh, but, you know, this this is one thing that I've never really had uh, a huge opinion on, because I think it comes down to your health values. If you start saying only have this amount of sugar, then you're probably going to ward people away from fruit, which may be fine. Like I said, I, I, I probably get about half of my carbs from fruit every day. And, uh, you know, my blood sugar is totally fine. My cholesterol is totally fine. Um, you know, I, I don't have problems with, with obesity because I, I control my, my entire calorie intake. So there, there's just not a, a necessarily negative effect. Um, I, but again, I'm, I'm going to say that because of our health values, I'm not going to say, don't worry about it. And therefore 90% of your carbs can come from processed sugary stuff. Cause then you're missing also the good qualities of, of healthier food. So, you know, I'll just leave it at that and say our American heart association and department of agriculture say about 10% of your calorie intake from sugar is, is acceptable. But some of these studies, again, matter of fact, I will say this, this one particular group that I will give you the link to that has done they, they, they claim they've done meta-analyses reviews of every single study they possibly can find. And they said they find absolutely no instance that a study has ever proven that a high sugar diet causes obesity. Um, it's, but again, you're talking about high sugar diets in an isocaloric sense. If I eat 2000 calories a day more than I should, more than I use, then it's the, it's the sugar, it's the fat, like any, I mean, even excess protein will cause obesity, but, but as we often blame sugar as the enemy and we have to eat super, super low sugar, they're saying in all of the literature, they can find not a single study that shows sugar in an isochloric study causes obesity. But as soon as you start approaching 40 or 50% of calories from fat, then even with that isocaloric nature of the study, you start actually adding body fat, meaning your metabolism has to start coming down because you're starting out with a certain level of food and then you isocalorically give them higher fat intake. And as, as we showed in last Friday's study, you know, within one week, the me metabolic rates were already coming down 85 to 100 calories in just one week of low carb dieting. So, so I would still stand by just standard health values and say, you know, Hey, have, have a little bit. I mean, I, I, I probably have a bite or two or a small serving of some kind of high sugar food every single day. Uh, yesterday I had kind of my normal day. And then at night I had a little, you know, chocolate cookie, uh, you know, as, as my, you know, the, the end of my, my dinner. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I do is just every once in a while when something really good and decadent is there, 
I, I may say no because it's just not part of my my plan for the day, but I may say yes. I, I don't have a health principle that says thou shall not ever eat that. I Damn. got another question here, Joe. Yes, sir. You had mentioned, uh, you know, cholesterol uh, a moment ago. So how about the claim that keto diets lower one's cholesterol? Because it sounds to me if your metabolism is dropping, if you're ingesting 80% of your calories from fat, uh, you know, intuitively I have to make the conclusion that fat, your cholesterol has to go up, yet... I see advertisements all the time that says, go keto, lower your cholesterol. So what, what's, what's the facts on that? Um, if your calories are coming down and you're losing body fat, so you're in a hypocaloric diet, even on a ketogenic high fat diet, your cholesterol will come down, but it will come down much faster and much better if it's a lower fat diet. So it, it, it again, it comes down to a statement that I've made in the past is that in this whole carb versus fat combat war that we're in, it, it's, it's the fact that a low fat diet outperforms a ketogenic diet in every way, every time. That doesn't mean that a ketogenic diet is the worst way on the planet to eat. It still has some principles we can draw from, and it still could be the right way for some people. So it's more like a, this is best and this is just not quite as good. Uh, but in, in some instances, you know, especially if you're super serious about a ketogenic diet where 80 to 90% of your calories are coming from fat, you're, you're going to die of heart disease. I mean, just put it on your tombstone now, that's going to happen. But if, if you're in a calorie deficit and you're eating well and, and you just tend to keep your carbs a little bit lower, so it's not a ketogenic diet, it's just a lower carb, slightly higher fat diet, I've got no problem with that. But, but again, you know, look, look at the real data of inpatient studies, especially as you're talking about looking at the biochemistry, because um, it's, it's just a, a, a big, big difference. And I'll, I'll give you one little anecdotal study. One, one of my... One of my very first clients I ever had 25, 27 years ago, guy came in, he's super motivated. He's going to lose weight. And he was a sedentary guy, a financial advisor kind of guy sit, sitting in a chair all day long and starts working out like a beast. He's working out every day, all of a sudden, which is new to him. And he's eating his, you know, perfect diet. So, you know, very balanced. It's, it's lower fats, moderate carbs, high quality foods in one month. 30 days, his triglycerides in his bloodstream went from 900 to 90, showing that just what is in our blood or what's in our diet is instantly getting in our bloodstream. And, and if, if you remember that, that story I told you about my, my organic chemistry class, where they, just to show in biochemical terms what this mm -hmm. is like, you know, they drew somebody's blood and they put it there. Then they had them eat a cheeseburger and fries. And 15 minutes later, they drew the blood and they yeah. put those test tubes together. And just right in front of your eyes, the person who had just had the cheeseburger and fries, within minutes, the top half of that test tube was just pure oil. It just looked like blood. And then on top of it was, was canola oil. That Because when you eat high fat, you know, you know intake, that's, that's going somewhere. 
And it's not just flushing out of your GI system. It's going inside your bloodstream, which means it's going inside of cells. And if it's in your bloodstream, what happens? I mean, atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis, those are the, you know, the, 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 the attractants that make the, those lipids stick as plaque or, or just, you know, arterio or atherosclerosis, you know, you have to have the fat there as a constituent to make that happen. If your fat intake is low, it can't happen unless you're just hypercholesteremic. I mean, you're, you could have a rare disorder where your body just manufactures cholesterol. That's, that's an actual metabolic disorder. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Just like kind of curious about the fruit and the fructose. I mean, I probably get oh, over a hundred grams of carbs from fruit and then probably another 50 in an intro workout drink, um, which I got to look at the label, but I'm sure it's going to probably have fructose. But then again, I get 450 grams of carbs per day. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just kind of curious, do I need to lower my fruit content or? No. So if, if you're getting, let, let's say you just described about 25% of your carbs are coming from fruit. Remember fructose is only half of the sugar content. So, uh, so you're really only getting about, um, it's from a quarter to like an eighth. So, so about an eighth of your carbs might be coming from actual fructose. So, so that's not as high as you think, but an interesting thing would be Jack, let's, let's say that you go from, you know, your carbs were as high as 500 grams a day. Now they're 450. Let's say two months from now, you're down to 200 or 250 grams of carbs. I, I know you're not looking forward to that, but, uh, but let, let's say if that's the need to get you lean enough where we want you to go, then you might notice a difference if, if 50 of those grams a day were coming from fructose or, or fruit in general, and you replace it with something like rice or potatoes or something like that, you, cause a lot of people will say this. A lot of people say, Joe, I just feel better if my meals are all the same, if it's all just like chicken and rice or this in, in whole food, they're not getting it from, you know, drinks and, and that kind of thing. So it would be an interesting experiment from you because there, there is the, the biochemistry that's happening, but then there's also how you really function and feel and, and, you know, sometimes those are, those are a little bit different, but like we talked about some, some, some of us feel very sated and great on certain foods and some of us don't. So, so some uniqueness there and just our, our different body types. Good question though. And definitely something for us to watch as we get uh, into the summer here. Any, any other questions? Bronwyn. I have a random one. So you mentioned that as part of these studies and as part of the findings, we're looking at this as far as, you know, the average or standard man, standard woman, presumably an ideal has or hasn't changed as average people have. What are, how are they defining that? Like what are, what is their, their definition of average or standard that they're, they're going by? In terms of a recommendation, like how much of your percentage of, you know, calories should come from fruit or sugar or something like that. I'm not sure what you're, no, I'm just, I'm always, I'm always curious when they're saying like the standard model average person, like, mm. what does that mean? I mean, even within my family tree, we've got some pretty radical deviations. So what is, what are they defining as average? Yeah. So you know, here's an interesting thing to consider. If, uh, 
if you even look at my family, for example, you with with parents and siblings who, you know, I think 75 to 80 percent of my immediate family has been 100 pounds overweight at some point in their lives. And so you would say, well, is that does that skew average? But behaviorally, you look at what they consume and what their lifestyles are, and you would have to say, well, they're they could still be incredibly average human beings. Like if they ate the standard, you know, recommended type diet, they may all of, all of a sudden come right back down to a healthy baseline. And so average is just literally average. So like if I, if I took a sample size of a million people, I, I would probably have, have a pretty good sample. Like there, there would not, there, there would be a lot of deviation on the ends, but the average would be pretty true. Whereas if I just pick two random people out on the streets, you know, that could be two total outliers. So in terms of average, I mean, they're, they're just looking at the, the known norms. For example, uh, you, you know, this study looked at a thousand subjects and they, they did a hundred thousand data points a day. That gives you a lot of detail. The study we looked at last week, there were 19 subjects and they did week long studies. Uh, not decade-long, you know, in terms of a human span. So, so it's really hard to say that that sample size last week was a perfect average. They did everything they could, but they would even list that as kind of a limitation. So, I, I mean, I, I'm probably not answering your question properly, but average is average. You, whatever sample size you get, there's always an average. If it's two people, there's an average of those two. If there's 20 million, there's an average of those 20 million. So everything that we know in human nutrition and physiology is based on these compilations of every single data point ever taken. So uh, I'll, I'll give you one little example. The, the, the recommended high range for thyroid stimulating hormone TSH, you know, used to be here. Now they've kind of moved it down to here and then they moved it down a little bit here because as they do more studies and they get more data in more refined ways of testing, they, they keep shifting around to say what's really normal. So it, it is a moving target, you, you know, that's, there's no perfect AI definition of, of average, but it's at least the averages that we've studied to date. But I'll say one more thing and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop, but you could also look at the average of different populations. So this is an average of America. This is an average of diabetics in America. This is an average of obese people in America. You know, you can, you can keep subsetting it to death to find different ways of calculating average. But in, in most of these studies they're when they say that they're just looking at those physiological norms. You guys have some great questions. Any, any more? Joe, I just want to make one point about the fruit, going back to fruit and fructose. Uh, I get asked a lot by clients like that don't want to go over on their protein or their, their fat, but they want to increase their carbs. How do I increase my carbs without, you know, increasing my protein and my fat? Because some of our vegetables have protein, a little bit of fat, and it all adds up. So I automatically recommend them increasing their fruit because there's not a lot of protein or fat in fruit. It's more of more of a sugar. And so it works. They still lose weight and it's never affected their weight loss or their weight loss in a negative way. Yeah. And, and this is something we talked about earlier in the week as well, which I think is, is very much worth repeating, Roseanne, which is 
you, you know, don't forget about the phytonutrients, the bioflavonoids, all these other things, the fiber that comes in the fruit and the fact that I, I've never binged on fruit. I've never started eating grapes and ended up saying, oh my gosh, I ended up eating a five gallon bucket of grapes, or I didn't go have one banana and accidentally eat seven bananas. It, you know, you just, it, it's not like Doritos or candy bars or M&Ms. I mean, it's just, it's very hard to be unhealthy eating, eating fruit, but you know, to your point, this is a total aside, but I, I love that question because I get it a lot as well. If I increase this, then this happens on, on this side of the ledger on this column. And so, you know, what do you do? And it's funny because you and I being nutrition coaches, you look at all those columns, like, cause, cause I do meal planning for clients all the time. And so if I'm shifting something, like I want to add 25 grams of carbs and I say, oh man, I did that out of oatmeal and that increased protein by five grams. Well, I just have to go somewhere else and take an ounce of protein out of another meal, you know, because now they're getting extra protein here. And so you're constantly juggling those three macronutrients. So there's almost no purity. Like even if you're adding lean protein, you're going to add probably a couple grams of fats. So anyway, just as anybody who's watching, that's a, a, uh, uh, in a side that, you know, you can always take even from another meal or something else. And even if you have to reduce something or add something somewhere else, that's, that's doable. It's part of the process. Yeah. Another thing you said that I, I picked up on in your study was that after coming off a regular diet of, with the mice coming off a regular diet and then going into more of a eating what they want, more of a higher carb, lower, lower, moderate fat diet, they fat felt well, they didn't tend to overeat because they felt satisfied. They felt well. And I purposely will do this with my clients when I'm just starting out with them. I'll set their carbs a lot higher than I maybe would have even 10 years ago when I first started doing this, just because I know they're going to feel so well, they're still going to be at a calorie deficit and they're still going to lose body fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's another really good point. I, I I also have a hard time sometimes convincing people because what they've heard about protein increasing satiety or the whole kind of volumetrics phenomena where if you just fill up your stomach with salad and leafy vegetables, it's so much volume that you won't be hungry. You can do that all day long, but if your blood sugar is low because your carb intake is low, you're going to be starving. I mean, you can, you can have such a full gut, you feel like you're going to explode and still be hypoglycemic and feel like you're ready to gnaw your arm off. And, and I think that's why in this study, you know, mice allowed to eat whatever they want. If they had enough carbohydrate, they just weren't hungry. And that has that, that leptin hypothalamic loop, you know, mechanism there that's happening. You don't get that with fat, you know, fat, they just kept, they just kept mowing down more, more and more fat. You know, one of the things that's really challenging is, is when you look at one particular study, there are always limitations to that study and they can't investigate everything. And so when I present something like this, I don't want to make it sound like, hey, look at this one study. It answers every single question. You know, this is one study of millions probably that have been done. And it was very unique enough in some respects that I wanted to use it but I also looked at some meta-analyses to review and, and just make sure that it fits in place without contradicting anything. Because if something's, if you have an entire world of research that says one thing and then one study says something totally different, 
you 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 got to assume you know ninety nine to one where's where's the potential problem, uh, but the fact that this other group said we've looked at every single study you could ever look at, and high sugar diets just don't cause obesity, then you say wow this study actually fits that mold, but in some very unique ways of testing you know a thousand mice, hundred thousand data points. Uh, over a 10 year human lifespan, you know, those are some very interesting and well done parameters for, for this particular study. All right, man, well, we got we are, uh, we are almost at the end of the hour this these go fast when I actually do some homework and present something worthwhile. So you guys, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to stick to this, this, this pattern for Fridays, because like I said, I, I think it's a little bit more um, meaty, so to speak, to, to, to go through, you know, actual research and, and have something to talk about. So if you guys are game for that, I'll kind of keep up with that pattern. Uh, good to see you bouncing in here, Tracy, for the last couple of minutes. I, I don't know if you uh, just, just popped in to see what we were doing or if, if there was a time zone issue there. Uh, Fridays are a big coaching call day for <laughs> IFYM. So I'm gotcha. in back-to-back -back calls for them, but yeah, I was excited. I was like, Oh, I have time. And then I was like, crap coaching call, but you know, I always love to hear from you and all the things that you have to share and everything. Cause you're that. a wealth of information. So I'm heartbroken that I didn't get to be part of the whole thing though. Well, I, I think I will for these, especially these Friday calls. I think I'm going to not only make them public like this, but I'm going to put them in a, in a folder where other people can get to them. So with, with the actual um, resources and so forth. So, so I'll, I'll do that. I'll create a whole different folder to put these, these in. So, so you can view them later, Tracy. Awesome. All right. Well, guys, I appreciate your time. I hope you have an awesome weekend and I will see a lot of you guys back next Monday or the next time you can join. But uh, I, I will I will post this and, and give you those links as well, Annalisa. I'll email them to you directly and, and post them here, uh, at least by early next week. Thank so, you so much. Okay, thank you guys.